Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. So last week we talked about grief, we talked about bitterness, we talked about complicated relationships, and we talked about the process of inner healing. It was a great message, it was a challenging message, and uh, I take no sense of pride in saying that the topic for today's message is just as uncomfortable. I know, right? No applause on that one. Uh, Just as difficult, um, not for the faint of heart. Uh, The topic that I'm going to be speaking on can leave you uh, physically and emotionally unwell. It can make you sick to your stomach. Uh, Today's topic, if you'll put it on the screen, is love. No, it's no wrong slide. That's on me. I'm going to fix that. Today's topic is actually uh, a lot more complicated. It's actually this. Uh, It's running. There we go. Running. All of those things are true of love. Yes, it can make you sick, but in, in my estimation, running is a whole uh, lot more difficult and sickening. And uh, that's what we're talking about today. Why? Well, because it's a word that appears in the Old Testament 100 times. In the New Testament, it appears a jaw-dropping 17 times. Yes, you heard me, 17 So in the whole Bible, it's mentioned 117 times. Granted, that is a whole lot less than love, which is mentioned about 300 to 600 times in the whole Bible. But the reason that I want to talk about it today is because within the New Testament letters of Paul, it is one of the most primary and central metaphors to the Christian life. It's a topic that demands our attention. Um, What you guys may define it as is uh, fast walking. Uh, Maybe something that you would only ever willfully do if you're being chased by a grizzly bear. Uh, And we know, we all know that it's something that uh, Forrest Gump loved to do. Uh, But it's something that we need to focus on. It's something that we need to fix our attention on and see if if it's talked about in the Bible this many times, if it's such a central topic and metaphor for the Christian life, how can we learn to run and do it well? And so I want to show you just a few examples. I have a handful of examples for you, and I'll try to give you some context as we put them on the screen that lends credence to the fact that this is a topic worth studying. And so first and foremost, I want to draw your attention to Galatians 5-7. So Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. They're dealing with some unsound doctrine that has crept its way in. And he says to them, he says, you were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? Uh, Later on, he says, who has bewitched you? Right? He's, he's, he's convicting them, but here we see the first sign that following this Christian faith, living out this Christian life, is akin to running the race. Next, I want to show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, uh, starting in verse 24, it says, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Again, it's an encouragement and admonishment. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run, Paul writing, I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. Again, it's a word of encouragement and admonition for the early church who is at this time facing persecution. This is a new doctrine. It's a new gospel. They're putting it into practice and, again, trying to deal with some unsound doctrine, some some beliefs that don't exactly align. And he's saying, 
run the race. And even more so, he's saying, I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just going through the motions here. And, and he wants them to do as he's doing. Philippians 2.16, another Pauline epistle. He says, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. So again, it's a journey. It's a lifelong process. The prize is on the other side of this life. The last or second to last scripture that I want to show you before our central verse is in his letter, his second letter to Timothy. So 2 Timothy 4, 7, this is what he writes. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And to help you understand the context of this passage and, and the weight that it carries, he's writing this in about 65 AD from a Roman jail cell. And he'll die about two years later in 67 AD. And he's saying, I have run the race, I've finished, and I've remained faithful. And that's the hope for all of us, that we run the race and we can remain faithful till the day we draw our final breath. Amen? Amen. The central verse today comes out of Hebrews, Hebrews 12.1, and it's, it says this. It may be a verse with which you're familiar. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses of, li- of this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So my message to all of us today is run your race. If we understand that running is a metaphor for the Christian faith, then it begs the question, how do we run it well? How do we run it with endurance? How can we get to the end of our lives and say that we ran and that we finished the race? And so I want to pray for a moment, center us on these opening scriptures, and then I'll do my best to answer that question, all right? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done in our lives, what you're doing today. God, I pray that you anoint this time, that as we explore this topic of running and how we can do it better, how we can do it with endurance, God, and apply these lessons to our life, God, that you would encourage us, that you would enliven us, that you would... Uh, Help our understanding and our application of this word today. Bless us, lead us, guide us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So before we dive in, I want to address two important things. I know I hit you with a lot of scriptures. Most of those were written by Paul. But the first thing that I want to acknowledge today, full transparency, is we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. All right, it was a letter to early Christian Jews. It was written anonymously. And if you were to ask a modern Bible scholar who wrote the book of Hebrews, they would just shrug their shoulders. They'd be like, we don't know. Uh, But for me personally, I think that uh, the examples and the references to running that litter the New Testament, and specifically in the book of Hebrews, are a little difficult to overlook. So could it have been Paul? Possibly. We don't know. Uh, The second thing that I want to point out is the presence of that word, therefore, at the beginning of Hebrews 12.1. Uh, Some of you may not know this, but I attended ministry school. Caitlin and I both attended ministry school, and we studied a lot of things there. Uh, We studied the Pauline epistles and world religions and and so many different things. But the single most important lesson that I learned in ministry school, and the one that I remember more than anything else, is this. So if you're a note taker, you want to write this down. This is your ministry school degree in a single statement. If you ever see the word, therefore... Go back and see what it's there for. All right, I know that's grammatically incorrect, but if you ever see the word therefore, go back and see what it's there for. And so to fully understand and appreciate 
the, the exhortation in chapter 12, we have to go back and look at chapter 11. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I will summarize it for you. It's what many people know as the hall of faith. It's the hall of faith passage in the Bible. And so the writer of Hebrews goes and he is writing this list of individuals. And in fact, if you look in your translation, most translations and versions of the Bible only have one paracope. They only have one section here, and it's usually called something like great examples of faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is listing all of these people, and he's saying it was by faith that person X did thing Y. And so in here he lists people like uh, Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and Isaac and Joseph, so on and so forth. And he's listing out all of the amazing things that they've done. And so what he's trying to get them to do is, is realize there's something to this, right? If these people did it, there's something to it. So he's calling into remembrance all of these events, all of these occurrences, which brings us to the reason for the therefore... And our first point today, if we're going to run this race with endurance, we have to look at who's around us. We have to look at who's around us. That first phrase in Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we're surrounded, we're surrounded by such a huge crowd, some versions say cloud, of witnesses to the life of faith. The author wants his audience, who again at this time is dealing with unsound doctrine, who's dealing with temptations and persecutions, to remember, first and foremost, all of the things that had happened before they arrived on this planet, right? Remember the great works of these past church forefathers and foremothers, this idea that by faith you can do life-altering things. God can bring you to a place, and all you have to do is believe that God is more powerful, he's greater, his calls and commands are worth far more than their current troubles, in your current circumstances. He, he lists it out. He says, so Abel, he brings a worthy sacrifice. Noah builds an ark. Abraham leaves his home. Sarah has a child. Moses leads the people. Rahab hides the spies. And they do all of it. Why? Because they had faith. That's the central point. They do all of these incredible life-altering things, again, because of faith. And so again, it's this message to them, and I want you to hear the heart of the author of Hebrews here, this idea that if they can do it, so can you. If they can do it, so can you. And it's important for us to look at who's around us. He uses that word surrounded, since we're surrounded by this crowd of witnesses. So he wants them to think about the people who've gone before them, but also the people who are around them, who are doing life with them. And it's important for us both physically and spiritually. And so I want to illustrate it to you in the physical. I'm about to give you my running credentials, and then uh, I'll give you the application in the spiritual. And so when you think about running, I just want to do a quick informal poll. Uh, by show of hands, who in here likes to run? Who in here would say, I enjoy running? All right, five hands. Five. All right, so I am one of those weirdos, like all of you, who likes running. And I know that I'm in the minority. Uh, it's not very popular. I actually didn't start running because I wanted to. I started running in response to a health scare some number of years ago. I had a panic attack, and I ended up going to the hospital in the middle of the work day. I uh, had all the symptoms of a heart attack, and I walked into my boss's office and I said, hey, I think I'm dying. And she said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I'm serious. So we went to, this is a true story. We went to uh, the Southwire Medical Center, and I said, hey, I think I'm having a heart attack. And they said, all right, please wait, and the doctor will see you in a minute. 
and like an idiot, I sat down and uh, I said, okay, I'm waiting. Uh, they didn't call me back after about five minutes. And I said to my boss, I said, I'm, I'm seriously feeling something here. This isn't good. And we went to the emergency room and they took me back and they said, yeah, you have um, some sort of heart arrhythmia. It's triggered uh, what I came to understand as a panic attack. And they said, uh, you're drinking too much caffeine and you're not exercising enough. And I said, all right, I never want that to happen again. So I started running. Uh, there was a running track or a walking track across the street from our house. And I went out there and I started just doing what I could. And when I started out, I couldn't run a mile in less than 20 minutes. It was really ugly. It was really sluggish. But I adopted the mantra. I said, even if it's slow, even if it's sloppy, I'm going to finish the race. And that was my mantra. And so over the past nine years, I have amassed more than 1,000 miles. In a single calendar year, I ran a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon, and a marathon. I do not recommend that to anyone. It was torturous. I gave up many Saturdays with my family and had many phone calls huffing and puffing with Caitlin asking, what am I doing with my life? Why? Rethinking all of my life choices. Uh, but I recognize that people aren't like me. Five of us enjoy it here. Uh, but Strava, they are an exercise tracking app. They did a much more formalized poll and survey than I did, and they actually surveyed 25,000 runners. 25,000 runners all over the world, largest study of its kind. They completed it last year, and they found out that 8% of runners actually like running. Less than 1 in 10 actually like running. So why do they do it? Well, who knows? But what they did find was that the other side of the coin was that 50% of runners actually say they hate running or that they only tolerate running. Uh, in fact, the largest group of runners identified by this survey, which again is only people who run, was reluctant runners. People that just say, hey, I've got nothing better to do, so I guess I'm going to run. And if you don't like it, why would you do it? I just, I don't get it. That survey to me is so mind-boggling. But as you dig into the data, something becomes really neat here, and I want to illustrate it to you. If you look at the data, where that scale starts to tip is when you look at not, uh, not why they run, whether they're excited to do it or they're merely trying to reach a health goal or they're doing it begrudgingly, but how they run, whether alone or in a group. And that is the ticket, because as you start to look at the data, you see the scales start to tip. And if people run in groups, if they run with other people, they enjoy it a lot more. And I've seen this in my own life. It actually boosts physical performance running with people. Uh, when I ran my first 5K, I ran it in 2017, and I ran it through the streets of Atlanta, and it ended on the field in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And I checked my little tracker at the end, and it says I ran it in a pace of 748. My normal mile pace is between eight and nine minutes. So when I saw 748, I jumped for joy. There was a car there you could sign, and a lot of people were like, awesome, glad to be a part of it. I wrote my mile pace on the car is how excited I was. I was thrilled. I ran another 5K six months later, and I chopped 20 seconds off that pace, which is insane. Mostly between races, you're chopping maybe two seconds off, but I chopped 20 seconds off. Why? Because I was running with people. There were people around me encouraging me. If I saw someone else start to go uh, uphill, then I was going to go uphill. If they were given a little boost, I was going to give a little boost. There's people with signs. There's people handing out snacks and goodies. When I was running my marathon, there were people handing out nuts and red vines and all sorts of things. And I was like, give me whatever you got because I think I'm about to die. You know, they were giving you water. There's people cheering you on. And it creates this mentality that says we're in it together. And it changes your mental state. 
And if it's true in the physical, let me tell you, people, it's true in the spiritual. We've got to be mindful of who's around us. If the people around us can boost our physical performance, maybe they can boost our spiritual performance, which begs the question here today, with whom are you running? Who's in your running group? Who's beside you on the course? Are they fellow runners? Are they fellow Christians? Are they people who are going to encourage you, enliven you, energize you, give you those snacks, give you those pep talks along the way to keep you going? The Bible has a lot to say about the company we keep. It says that bad company corrupts good morals. It says that uh, those who hang out with the wise become wise. But companion with fools does harm. So I want you to do this. We're going to do a thought exercise together. One of two we'll do today. Uh, I want you to get in your mind the top ten list of people closest to you. Top ten list of people closest to you. Friends, family members, colleagues. Get that in your mind. And then I want you to assess them collectively and say, what is the net sum total of faith-based positivity or negativity that they add to my life? Are they encouraging you? Are they uh, helping you in your walk with Christ? Or are they causing you to compromise your morals? Are they causing you to cut corners or say or do things that you'd rather not? So think about that. And then what I want you to do is look at that list of 10 and say... How far down on the list do I have to go before I get to someone who maybe isn't a Christian? Are they in the top 10 or are they outside of the top 10? How far down do you have to go in the list where you get to someone who, though not a bad influence, though not someone that you would say is a bad person, is someone who maybe doesn't attend church with you or doesn't share your same belief? Because I want to give you something today. This is, this is sort of my, my point of this, is as we consider the people that we're running this race alongside, it's just as important for us to ensure that we're running it with other Christians so that we have that iron sharpens iron, we're in this together mentality. But it's just as important to run our race with people who don't think and look and act like us. And we have no further to look than the example of Jesus Christ who said in Mark 2 to the crowd that had gathered there, he said, the healthy are not the ones who need a physician. Right? He says, I've come to heal the sick, to call the sinners to repentance, and to seek and save the lost. It's important that we surround ourselves with people that we can pour into. Because just as there are other people in the stands and they're watching you in a physical race, there's other people beside you who are sort of ebbing and flowing based on your performance. It's like that in the spiritual sense too. There's people around you who need your encouragement. There's people around you who are fading. They're weary. They're hurting. And they need your pep talk. They need your experience. They need your instinct. They need your, uh, that dialogue that can help keep, keep them going. So listen, how do we respond to those individuals? How do we respond to them? Well, look, give God glory. Be honest. Be transparent about your struggles. Talk about God and the victories he's brought in your life and the victories still to come. Both of them. Because they need to see that despite the happy face that we paint on, we don't have it all together. They need to see it. Pray for them. Pray with them. Don't be silent about Christ. Share him. Because the world around us needs to know. Look, I don't know where you've been. I don't know your story. I don't know the life you've lived. But what I think is a universal truth is that the things that you've been through and the things that I've been through are not in vain. We're not here in this moment for whatever brought us here today for no reason. 
we each have our own set of experiences, our own set of emotions, the lens through which we see the world, and we're each uniquely poised in position to pour into the people who are around us. And I want to show you in a couple of passages, and again, I'm big on context, so I'll try to give you some context here. But as Paul's writing to the early church, he's meeting them where they are. He knows that they're going through troubles. He's acknowledging where they're failing, where they're having hardships. But look what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 2 and 3. This is interesting. He says, the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. You today can be a letter from Christ to the people around you. And all you have to do is share your story. It's that simple. All you have to do is be transparent in your experiences. Point them to God every step of the way. In the book of Esther, we hear the, the story of Esther, the account of Esther, and she is faced with this predicament where she has to go and present to the king her petition to uh, protect her people. And so she's messaging back and forth with Mordecai, her cousin. And in, in Esther 4.14, 4, uh, Mordecai says this, he says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. This is what I want you to focus on. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? Consider your life, consider where you are today, and ask yourself as you interact with those around you, has everything I've been through brought me here for such a time as this? Now, if you'll allow me, I'm going to go off script for a second, and I just want to share something. In this spirit of transparency, right, I've been really vocal, I've been really honest, but if you're here for the first time, you've never heard me say this, but um, when I was eight years old, my mother passed away. I never knew my dad, and so I was uh, forced to leave Nebraska, uh, where I grew up, and come to Georgia to be raised by my aunt and uncle, who are my godparents, and I still carry a lot of baggage, from that, as anybody would. I'm still processing a lot of things. I'm still dealing with a lot of things. I'm still going through things and, you know, seeing how God has used this to, to shape me into who I am. At the time, it was the worst thing I could possibly imagine. But as I look back through the lens of my experiences and the relationships I've made along the way, I could point you to numerous occasions as early, as recently as last fall, that me walking that road, me enduring that difficulty has allowed me to pour into the lives of others, dealing with grief, dealing with sadness, dealing with the loss of loved ones, ensuring that they don't make the same mistakes or fall prey to the same temptations that I fell prey to as a result of what I endured. And the same is true for you. God can take your incredibly painful memories the worst moments of your life, and he can shape them into something beautiful, not only for your benefit, for, but, but for the benefit of the people around you. And all it takes is a willingness to be honest, a willingness to open up and to do life alongside people. Because again, if we're going to run this race with endurance, we have to look at who's around us. And as we leave this point and move into the next, I want to leave you with one bit of encouragement that if you ever get, get weary 
if you ever get tired, if you ever start feeling your strength fade in this arena, hear the heart of the author of Hebrews and think of the examples of so many who came before us. If they can do it, so can you. If they can run, so can you. It's not too, it's not too much. It's not insurmountable. It's not too painful. You can do it. The next thing that we have to do in addition to looking at who's around us is we have to leave our baggage behind us. So not only does it say, therefore, since we're surrounded by this crowd of witnesses, it says to strip off every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us or entangles us or trips us up. And so we have to start to look at the baggage that we're carrying and ensure that we're leaving it behind us. And I'm not talking about setting it down for a second and then picking it back up after we've done a little stretch. Because unfortunately, church, if we're being totally transparent and totally honest, that's what we can do some Sundays. We can come in here and we can hear a word from pastor and we can say, man, that was great. And we come to the altar and we have this incredible moment with God. And then we leave the altar and we take the things that we set down temporarily with us. And we don't really experience the full healing and the full deliverance that we should. And so we've got to leave it behind us. Because... Some things that we pick up along the way, we might say that, uh, well, that's just life. That's just part of life. There's many things that can slow us down. There's many things that can trip us up. And in the short term, they're not going to seem like that much of a big deal. Right? An offhanded comment in, in, a, in an argument isn't going to seem like that big of a deal. But if allowed to fester, if allowed to stay with us as we attempt to run this race, it's only going to slow us down. And again, let me remind you, this Christian faith is not a, it's not a sprint. It's not a short race. It's an ultra marathon. It takes striving. It takes straining. How do we know this? Well, let's go to the original text. So if you know me, you know I'm big on context. I'm also big on word studies. If you look at the original Greek in this particular passage in Hebrews, that word is treko, the Greek word treko, which, yes, means to run, which, yes, means to make haste, but it also means this, and I'm going to read it exactly from my notes. It says, to spend one's strength in performing or attaining something or overcoming something through the exertion of all one's effort. So I'm going to summarize the Christian faith for you in three words. Are you ready? It's not easy. And I think we can all attest to that. And unfortunately, we've been sold and probably been part of selling this idea that once you become a Christian, everything's great. And it's rainbows and it's butterflies. But according to the writer of Hebrews, it's a straining. It's a striving. It's an exertion of all of one's effort. It's not a cakewalk. And so if it's not a cakewalk, it's important that we get rid of the weights. Because let me be honest, right? If you're running through the streets of San Diego, a backpack on your back and a half a loaf of bread in your hand isn't going to seem like a lot of weight at first, right? Because that's where I was last February. I was late to catch a train, and I was booking it through the streets of San Diego looking like an absolute fool. And for a little bit, I thought I could make it. I was like, boom, I was dodging through traffic. I was like, I got this. And it wasn't long before I stopped, and I called Caitlin, and I said, I'm not going to make it. You guys are going to have to ride the train without me. Because, again, weights like that, small weights like that, in the short term, man, if it was right across the street, boom, easy, done. But halfway across the town, it slowed me down. It tripped me up. It hindered me. Right? Wearing a fanny pack, walking through Disneyland, though not stylish, but very practical, uh, is not going to be a big deal, you know, in the first hour of the day. But by the end of the day, when the kids are wanting their snacks and their juice box, and can I have money for this, and can we go over here, 
you're, at that point, you're just like, take the fanny pack. I don't want it. You know? Because again, in the short term, the weights that we carry, the things that we endure, they may not seem like much. But again, this is not a short-term race. This is a lifelong pursuit, a lifelong straining. We have to let the weights go. They'll only make us stumble. They'll only hold us back. So what are the weights? What are the weights we might deal with? Uh, If we look in the Bible, unfortunately, it's not clear right here in Hebrews, but there's other places where we see lists of sins. Um, In Galatians 5, just 12 verses after he starts this list, Paul starts this list just 12 verses after saying, hey, you were running so well. Um, He says, when you follow the the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. And so he starts listing sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. He goes on from here. This, again, is set in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. In other places in the Scripture, in Ephesians, he continues these lists. And he says, hey, you're supposed to get rid of all lying and stealing and slander and rage and bitterness. And the lists go on and on and on. Those are the weights. Those are the weights we've got to get off of us. Those are the things that are going to hinder us. And not just those weights, but the writer of Hebrews says, think of the one that most easily, he says, especially, especially, think of the one that most easily trips you up. You got it? This is our second thought exercise. Think of those lists. Think of all the sins and think of that one area that trips you up more than any others. Right? I'm going to use a crazy analogy. What's the peanut butter on the mouse trap? that keeps you going back even though you know it's dangerous. You got it? The writer of Hebrews says, get rid of that one. You can't run the race with it. You can't finish the race. You can't end it strong. You won't have the stamina if you keep that with you while you're running. We've got to get rid of it. So how do we do that? Well, we've got to repent. How do you repent? Well, this is a, uh, this is a sermon within a sermon. This is like a bonus point straight from my brain, but I'm going to call it the three A's of repentance. All right, so how do we repent? First, admit that it's a problem. You can't look at it anymore and say, well, that's just part of life. That's just who I am. Admit that it's a problem. Then you got to ask God for forgiveness. And you got to say, God, man, I've been saying this is a part of life. I've been saying this is who I am, but I know I can't do that anymore, and I'm sorry for doing that. And then you have to act differently. Act differently. Change your mindset toward the sin. Change your approach. Change your habits. Change your customs. Change your routines. Change who you're around. Change the music you listen to and the shows you watch. Start changing some of these things. There's one thing that I've learned. I've told you I've carried a lot of baggage as a result of the things I went through, and I've done a lot of learning and a lot of growth over the past 20 years. One of the things that I learned was that when you're trying to get over an addiction, when you're trying to get over a struggle, when you're trying to get over that thing that seems insurmountable, what experts say to do is something called the replacement factor. And you've probably heard this before. I know Pastor John has talked about it before. It's this idea whereby when you're removing something from your life, you have to immediately plug that hole with something else. Because if you don't, time, being like a fluid, will fill whatever vessel it has And something else, unsavory, will creep into its place. So figure out what needs to be removed and replace it with a God-honoring, life-fulfilling, relationally gratifying experience so that you don't fall prey to those same temptations. And let me be clear here. It is not about trying harder. It's not about doing more because that's been my snare for far too long. As I said, man, if I could just get past it, if I could just do more, I'm a planner. So I'm like, if I can just write the to-do list just right, 
if I can just check all the boxes. It's not about that. It's about relying on God passionately, daily, continually, relying on God, which brings us to our third point today. Because as soon as we've examined the people that are around us, once we've left our baggage behind us, we can live knowing he's ahead of us. It frees us to this incredible realization. And so I want to show you in the next verse after the one that we've examined today, Hebrews 12, 2 says this. So this is immediately following all of these requirements. Run the race with endurance, the, the race that God has set before us. We do this. We do this. What is this? Run the race by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. We keep our eyes fixed on him. He is the champion. Jesus is the prize. He is the reason for the race. He's the one who's calling us onward. And how do we know this? Well, we know that he's already conquered. We know that he's already overcome. And I want to show you some scriptures, some celebratory scriptures in which we can latch on to this idea that he's gone before us and he's worthy of our praise, our adoration, and most of all in this race, our continual focus. John 16, 33. In John chapter 16, he's saying that the Son of Man must be betrayed, and he's telling the disciples all the difficulties that they're going to endure. So he's told them all of these terrible things, all of these horrific things that they're going to have to go through. And what does he say right out of the gate? I've told you all this so that you can have peace in me. I'm sorry, what? You just told me I'm going to be tried and persecuted and have to go through difficulties, but you're trying to tell me that so I can have peace? He says, here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. That's what it means to live knowing he's ahead of us. These present trials and tribulations, they don't mean much. Right? It says in Corinthians, it is working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. If he's done it, so can we. Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. So earlier in this, uh, this letter... Um, and this whole idea of Hebrews is the author is writing to this group of, of Christian Jews, and he's trying to say, look, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the priests. He's better than the prophets. He's, he's it. Jesus is it. And so looking at chapter five, he's, or looking at chapter 4, he's addressing this concept of priesthood, and he's saying this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Again, he's gone before us. He's endured ahead of us. And if he can do it, so can we, if we fix our eyes on him. Deuteronomy 31.8, um, here we have the, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, and they're dealing with the future before them. We're entering into the promised land. We're going on this journey. How do we endure? How do we, uh, how do we keep going forward trusting God? Well, this is how. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord will personally go ahead of you. I love the word personally. He will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. And if you look at those first books of the Bible, the first five books, and then I think of when Joshua takes over as the leader of the people, you see so much of this incredible exhortation and encouragement that says, Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Take heart. Why? The answer to that, or the follow-up to that phrase is always because God is with you. 
because God is with you. He will personally go before you. When my wife and I, Caitlin, my wife, uh, we will go on walks with the kids. So we have a seven-year-old daughter, a five-year-old son, Hannah and Daniel, and we go on family walks in Carrollton on the Green Belt. We do it about once a week, sometimes in the neighborhood. And uh, we'll go on these walks, and it never fails that about 15 minutes into said walk, way less than a mile, uh, we'll get to a point and Hannah will say, my legs are tired. And then, like, I think we've been on one family walk since she's been alive in which she hasn't said, my legs are tired. That's how often it happens. And, I mean, girl can, like, run in the backyard for, like, hours, like, go on a whole adventure, like, enact an entire Disney movie and not complain once. But the second that we, like, say, okay, we're doing a family walk, she's like, my legs are tired. I'm done. And not just like that, but it's, like, super dramatic. It's like, oh, I'm dying like dragging herself along, like laying down, like dragging herself. Ridiculous. And so sometimes I'll go to her and I'll pick her up and I'll say, okay, come on, I'll put her on my shoulders. But more often than not, what I've found that works best is I just keep walking. And I know that sounds callous, but I just keep walking. And I say, hey, come on, you can do it. Just one more step. Don't give up. You've got this. You're stronger than you think you are. I also say this when I say fourth quarter. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not even that into sports. But I say it's the fourth quarter. You just got a few more seconds. Power through. You can do it. And if I'm an earthly dad who doesn't have a whole lot of stuff figured out, how much more do you think God's saying to you? When your legs hurt. When you're tired. When you want to give up. Just keep coming. You've got it. You can do it. You'll finish strong. That's what it means to live knowing he's ahead of us. As we near the end, I want to reiterate something that I said earlier. I mentioned that it's your race to run, your unique experiences, your challenges, your triumphs, your victories. And I could have very easily called this message, Run the Race, but I titled it, Run Your Race, which used to be a lot simpler. And in this day and age of social media, it's difficult because our attention is pulled in so many different directions. And it's easy to fall prey to the sin of comparison now more than ever before, right? FOMO was never a thing years ago the fear of missing out, but now it's a thing because we're consistently looking at what other people have and what other people are doing and where other people are going, and we so want that for ourselves, right? Just out of frame at the family photo could have been utter chaos. The dog is eating the turkey off of the dinner table, but they're sitting there smiling in their matching outfits, and you're thinking, I want that. It's so easy, and it leads to two sneaky outcomes. It leads to envy, for the things that other people have and it leads to ungratefulness for the things that you have and it's so dangerous and it's so deadly and so I, I wanted to stop here at the end and just acknowledge that and give you some safeguards give you some words that you can look for to say hey am I getting out of my lane because this is the thing if you start to look at the people around you you're going to get tripped up faster than anything else you're going to fall flat on your face because again, how do we run the race with endurance? Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks to the left or to the right isn't fit for service in the kingdom. We've got to fix our eyes on the goal ahead. And so how do you know that you're running a different race? How do you know that you're getting out of your lane? You're going to recognize these words from elementary school. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Could've, would've, and should've. Strike those words from your vocabulary. Jordan, can you use them in a sentence? Sure, of course. I could have done that too. It's not that impressive. I would have taken a vacation in Australia too if I had as much money as she did. I should have taken that promotion when I had the chance. Look where they are now. All of those things are perversions of the very stuff we've been talking about today. It's looking at others, it's looking at the baggage, it's looking about at our circumstances, but it's doing it in the wrong way. And that's why it's so dangerous and so sneaky because you can be living this life constantly seeing how you measure up and never really notice it. But I wanna tell you today, I wanna to be clear, comparing yourself to others is an anchor, not an engine. It will never propel you, it will never excel you, it will never get you anywhere but feeling down for yourself. It will make you envious and it will make you ungrateful all the time, every time. Stay in your lane, fix your eyes on Christ, and run your race. Will you stand with me today? As we close today, I want to leave you with a story that I think illustrates better than anything else the race that lies ahead of us and how God responds and reacts to us on this journey. If you've heard the story before, bear with me. I hope to give it in a new light that can make this message come alive. Derek Redmond uh, is a runner. He's a retired sprinter, not an endurance runner. He's a retired sprinter from Great Britain. He, in his career, won the gold medals, both at the European Championships and the World Championships. He's had an incredible career, but unfortunately, it's been hindered by injuries. In 1988 in Seoul, he had to drop out of the race two minutes before he was to compete because of an Achilles tendon injury. He goes and deals with eight surgeries in the next four years to repair his, his torn muscles, his torn ligaments and tendons. But he's back, he's 26 and he's hungry and so he shows up in 1992 in Barcelona and he's ready to run. And he's competing in the four by 400 and wouldn't you know it, he runs the fastest qualifying heat and he wins his quarterfinal race and he's ready to go. So we're here in the semifinals and he's running and with 250 meters to go, he tears his hamstring and he hits the ground and he kneels a grimace on his face. And I don't know what you've been through but maybe that's where you are now. You're kneeling down. You're taking a minute. God, I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can keep going. This seems too much. It's too painful. It's too hurtful. But you know what he does? He gets up and he hops and he hobbles his way toward the finish line. But that's not even the coolest part because the coolest part is what happens next. Because what happens next is you can watch this on YouTube. What happens next is you see his dad fighting his way onto the track. Jim Redman is a dad who's very involved in his training. Sound familiar? And he's fighting his way past the security guards that are trying to hold him back. And he runs out onto that track and he takes Derek under his arms and he says, we're doing this. And he's patting him on the back and he's whispering in his ear. And Derek is just anguish on his face. 
He says, we're doing this, son. We're going. And they're hobbling along and Olympic officials are running at him and they're saying, you've got to clear the track for the other runners. You've got to get out. He's not qualifying. He's not finishing. And you see Jim Redmond, his dad, starting to force them away. And he's pointing toward the finish line and he's saying, no, that's where we're going. My son is going to finish the race. No matter the injury, no matter the cost. And together they cross the finish line. And as they do, all 65,000 people in attendance give them a standing ovation because they finished the race. And what I wanna encourage you with today is no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what injuries have beset your race, no matter the company you've kept, the weights that have tied you back, you're held, you're loved, and you can finish the race in the arms of the Father, amen? Let's pray. And then these altars are open for whatever you need. If it's this message, if it's something else, come and encounter the amazing love of God today and allow him to help you on this race. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you that it pursues us. That your word says you never leave us or forsake us, God, that you are with us every step of the way. God, and I pray today that we take heart, that we take inventory, It would ensure that our lives, the company we keep, the people around us, the things that we're holding on to, God, that we'd ensure that these things align with your word and with your will. And if they don't, God, that we'd have the courage, the strength to change them. Change our course, change our focus. Allow us to fix our eyes on you and run this race with endurance. Every painful step, God, we know that one day, It's gonna be worth it. And that while we're running, while we're on the course, while we have people around us, while we're straining, while we're striving, you're with us, holding us, encouraging us, calling us onward. God, we thank you, we praise you. It's in your name we pray today, amen. Pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.